If you have your Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 5. That'll be the last time I tell you to do that for a while. I've told you that for about 10 weeks out of the last 12. And so I go ahead and turn there to Galatians chapter 5. I do want to congratulate Kirsten on her baptism this morning. It's good to have her grandparents here with us today. Thank you for being here with us. And uh, I think even her brother's a little proud of her. So uh, anyway, it's so good to see her follow through with baptism uh, this morning. We're continuing the series. This is the last part of the series called Ripe. And today we're looking at a spirit fruit that I think is also underrated. Uh, It comes at the end of the list, but it's that fruit of self-control. Alexander the Great, many would agree, was a great leader by the world's standards. At 16, he was ruler of Macedonia. At 18, a victorious general. At age 20, a king. By age 30, he conquered and ruled the civilized world. It is said that he literally wept when he realized that there was nothing more to conquer. Some historians write that he conquered and ruled the world, but he could not conquer and rule himself. His passions led him away. Look at the introduction. It kind of leads us to this whole idea on the introduction. Without self-control, a person faces ruin. A ruined life ruins other lives. And I think many of us have possibly even uh, lived some of that, where we've seen that a a life that had no self-control, no self-restraint, was a life that not only was there in ruin in and of itself, but it also laid ruin to those around them. You see, a lack of self-control leads to the worst kinds of dysfunction. It's interesting when you look at the list here in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22, it says the fruit of the Spirit and then we have this long list and there's nine that are listed there and the first one there is love and what's interesting about that, the first one in the list is really the Hebrew ideal. If you were to ask the Hebrew and say, okay, what's the key to it all? When it comes to relationships with God and others, they would tell you, oh, it's all about love. The life we live should be defined by love. If you were to talk to the Greeks, those who had the Greek heritage that that was behind them and the way they approached life, you would see that the Greek ideal would be that of self-control. That was something that they held as one of the highest virtues, yet the culture that Paul was writing this letter, it was lacking self-control. The first century was a day that was marked by excess, gluttony, anger, violence, and all sorts of sexual perversions. These that I've just listed are the fruits of a life that lacks self-control. And that's what you find there. Now, however, one of the marks of the Christian life, what will be evident of that life is self-control. But what is self-control? Look on your outline. Definitions of self-control. Again, this is something that's kind of difficult to, to, to define, but here's three parts to it. It is literally saying no to all that God forbids and yes to all that he ordains. It is bringing one's desires, appetites, passions, and impulses under the authority of God's word, surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit, and accountable to another of like faith. If you really want to sum it up and how it comes about and what it exists as, that is a great definition 
of self-control. But then thirdly, it is also the discipline to abide in that place. Once we've uh, put ourselves under and surrendered to the authority of God's word, once we've surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit, once we're accountable to another of like faith, that the whole idea of self-control doesn't stop there. It's something that literally, and we're going to see this in just a moment, that is a whole idea of staying the course. It's the whole idea of abiding in that very place. So, let's look at several aspects of self-control. Look on your outline. How self-control is contrasted. The first thing you see there is very similar to last week's sermon. First of all, we see the contrast. We see the first thing, works of the flesh. The works of the flesh, if you were to say, give me a simple definition or, or, or tell me what it would be defined by, it would be out of control. It would be a life defined out of control. Because the flesh, operating in the flesh, carries us in so many different directions. It leads to gluttony. It leads to sexual immorality. It leads to all these things. How do we know that? Well, look at Galatians chapter 5. Paul tells us, verse 19, as we saw last week, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. The list goes on through verse 20 and 21. And we see all this and we see, okay, this is the life. The context of the life that's lived in the flesh, the context of it is a life that's lived out of control. Now, don't raise your hands. But how many of you have had a season in your life that was lived out of control. That was not surrendered to the accountability of God's word. It was not surrendered to the, to the Holy Spirit's control. It was not surrendered to the fact that you were willing to be accountable to someone else. But it was defined by what you wanted. You literally made it happen. And it was really defined, if you really get down to it, it was really a life out of control. You see, a car out of control can mean death. A fire out of control can mean loss of property. And we see that a life out of control can mean ruin and destruction. The Bible goes and says it this way. Look at Proverbs chapter 25. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Now what's interesting about this verse is really who wrote it. He was King Solomon. The Bible says the wisest man who ever lived. And what's interesting about Solomon was his wisdom. I mean, he, he had tremendous wisdom. He, wisdom. he had tremendous knowledge. Uh, you can look at the, what he writes in Proverbs, and, and you can see that he really had a good grasp of what was going on in the world and, and how things needed to be seen. But what's interesting is he writes this verse, and yet he would have been one who lived a life that was out of control. Study his life. You'll see it. I mean, he lived a life that was out of control. That's how you would have defined his life. Even though he had all the wisdom, he had all, his life was out of control. How do we know that? He tells us that in Ecclesiastes. You see, the purpose of the walls. If you, if you go to an ancient city to, uh, to understand really fully what this looks like, a city whose walls are broken down, the purpose of the walls was to protect. The purpose of the walls were to provide. And you see... What's interesting about life that's out of control, there really is no provision. There really is no protection because it leads to ruin. You see, a conquering uh, nation or army that would come in, if there were no walls, it was easy pickings. It was easy to overcome. It was easy to withstand, uh, to, to overcome that. Lack of self-control means we are like a city without protection. And here's what that means. Accessible to the enemy, susceptible to deception, 
unprotected from defeat and destruction. That's what a life looks like without self-control. That's what it looks like when there's no boundaries and no walls in a person's life. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. You see, all of this describes the story of the biblical character Samson. How many of you remember the story of Samson? I mean, even as children, we understood the story of Samson. We saw it. Uh, think about it. The strongest man who ever lived. He could conquer and control thousands, but could not con- conquer and control himself. His loss of control robbed him of God's desires for his life. He won many victories on the outside, but not many on the inside. His life was controlled by lust and fits of anger. His lack of self-control literally led him to ruin and destruction, even to the point of his tragic death. And, and you see all that right there in his life. And how many times have we preached sermons or have you heard sermons on his life and, and it was a life, well, how would you define it? A life defined by lack of control, no self-control. You see, there's been several studies that have proven that those who do not practice self-control have other problems in life. I mean, it spreads. It's not just many times in one area. It spreads to other areas. A person who lacks self-control, they deal with anxiety and depression. I mean, studies have shown this. They deal with self-centeredness or self-absorbed lives. It, It leaks on down to a critical spirit. Because the reason for the critical spirit is when there's a lack of self-control, there's no personal victory. There's no victory. There's no accomplishment. And we see all that. Think of this. A person who buys on impulse. How many of you ever bought on impulse before? You ever went out shopping and thought, man, I think I could use that. I mean, people, I mean, this is something that people are consumed with. But they see something they want. The urge hits them hard. They spend money, many times using credit. Anxiety and reality then sets in with the thoughts, should I have really bought that or purchased that? They then become depressed that they did it again. They realize how self-centered and self-focused they really are. They then become critical of themselves and critical of others. How many of you ever seen a cycle similar to that in your own life? Yeah. When we step outside and we want to do these things and anxiety, the depression, the self-centeredness, the critical disposition. See, self-control is the cure for an out-of-controlled life. It is also the cure for the consequences of an out-of-controlled life. That means less anxiety, less depression, self-centered, less self-centeredness, and, and, a, a, and less self Self-critical spirit. It's all about that. It's bad when you start writing tongue tongue twisters in a sermon. You just get all turned around. Anyway, so we see the works of the flesh is an out-of-control proposition while the works of the spirit, look on your outline, the works of the spirit is all about being in control. It's about being in control. Let me show you what it looks like. We've read this 10 weeks now. Verse 22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, these are things that when things are in control, when, when when we step outside of lack of control, we step inside of the control. Now, the controls we want to talk about a little bit more. It's more than just you controlling something. It's the word itself all through scripture is literally where you take your life and you surrender it to the cause of Christ. It's, it's that type of self-control. And we're going to see that. Look at, uh, turn in your Bibles. We're through with Galatians. But turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
The contrast between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit is great. There's a great chasm between the two. And has much to do with the outcome of one's life. If you're living your life in the flesh, which is really defined by an out-of-control life, it's going to be evident. It can lead to ruin. It can lead to destruction. But if you live your life and it's characterized by that of living in the spirit or controlled by the spirit, there's a, there's a whole different realm for that person. Now, Peter writes the words we're getting ready to read just before his impending death. If you continue to read 2 Peter and read to the end, you're going to see that he knows his death is just around the corner. Wouldn't you think something uh, from a caliber of man that he became, wouldn't you think that one of the last things that he writes would be very important? Oh, yeah, it was definitely very important. And so look at what he says. This is one of his last challenges. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. But also for you this very reason, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Now, now here's what he's literally saying in that first verse. When he talks about adding to your faith, he's, he's really saying this, that, that faith and belief must behave. There's a behavior issue when it's associated to faith, okay? James tells us that very clearly. So, given all diligence to add to your faith virtue, that's moral excellence, to virtue knowledge, that's truth, to knowledge, some say temperance, some translations say self-control. You, you, you see, it's not enough just to know all these things. It must be practiced. Solomon, King Solomon, I mean, look at all the wisdom he had. He gave us the book of Proverbs. Tremendous wisdom. I mean, some of the most astounding. There are people still today, even in the secular world, who will look at the Proverbs and look at it for leadership training and wisdom. Even the secular world looks at it at times. Yet he was a man who, who lacked the behavior that came with that wisdom and that knowledge and that truth. He, he lacked self-control. And then it goes on to self-control, perseverance. You know what the word perseverance there? It could mean not only patience, but it's really it carries the idea of staying on course. Staying on course. And, and he says, and from perseverance to perseverance to godliness. It's that whole idea of pleasing, being pleasing to God. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours, if these things define who you are and abound in you, that means they produce something, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be someone who just not only knows about the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it becomes a reality in your life. It goes on in verse 9. For he who lacks these things, and of course one of these things is self-control, is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin. Short-sighted. It, it literally means they can't see the big picture. They can't see their life in the context of what God has for them. They can't see it. They're over here living out of control. That's the opposite of it. They're fulfilling what they want, what they desire. They're not over here in self-control, understanding the knowledge and the truth of what God has for them. And so they're over here. There's a contrast between the two that we see here. He's saying, hey, they're short-sighted. They don't see the big picture. They're even to the point of blindness, which is a picture of deception. You put the two together, and it's a picture of delusion. They're living a delusional life. They're living a life apart from reality. They're living a life that's self-absorbed. 
They're defining for themselves what they'll, how they'll live and what they'll do. And, and it's all driven, we know, we see it in, 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 even in the uh, world we live today. It's all driven by feelings and emotions. And if it feels right, do it. And if it's this, it's totally out of control. And that's what he's saying. These are people who are delusional. He says, and, it, and they've forgotten that he has cleansed from his sin. They're, they don't even see that they can, the, the possibilities of how they can move from that life to the life that Christ has for them. For the Christian, how many of you have ever had a season in your life where you lived in, de, in a delusion? There was the deception that came into your life. Here's what happens many times. Many times as we make our way to living in the flesh, even as Christians, it's possible we can do that. There's times where it happens. Paul talks about his own personal struggle in Romans chapter 7. But sometimes we can get so immersed over here that we begin to doubt what God desires to do in our life. We begin to doubt our salvation. You ever doubted your salvation? You know where it comes from most of the time? It has in my life anyway. When I'm over here living a life that's out of control. When I'm living a life that's defined by my flesh. When I'm self-absorbed. When I'm, I center, the central point of my life is me. And, and, and many times when I'm over there, I begin to doubt all that God has ever done for me. Begin to doubt sometimes that, listen, here's where it goes. I begin to doubt that over here where he is is the best thing for me. Over here is my protection. This is where provision comes from God. And I lose sight of that. I begin to live a life of deception. Stepping outside of the truth of what God has for me. We see that so clearly in our society. We see it in others. Verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. You, you, you solidify yourself in what God has done for you. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. If this becomes the process of your life, verses 5 through 8, if these things become who you are, this is the reality in which you're living, you won't ever doubt, and you will fulfill what God has for you because you're no longer yielding to an out-of-control fleshly life. You're yielding and surrendering your life to the Spirit of God and what He wants for you. Look at verse 11. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into ever, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, these are things that, that, that move us, uh, take the reality of what we're dealing with here and moves us to the reality of eternity. You see, the problem with the world today is they're living as if there is no forever. They're living as if this is all there is. And that is a sad commentary. That is going to be a sad mistake because we've been called to live for the life to come. And so many people are missing it. And so we see the contrast between the, work, contrast between the works of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Look at the footnote on your outline. And this is where it really comes down to this. For the Christian, there's a difference between self-discipline and self-control. There is a difference between the two. Self-discipline is purely motivated by what's best for the person through a goal that needs, to be, uh, that needs to be achieved. Now, here's what this is really saying. So many times we think self-control is really self-discipline. And if I go over here and I put enough energy into this and I stay true to it and I do this over here and, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be godly or whatever, it can still be lived in the flesh. Did you know you can live a self-disciplined life and, and it be full of the flesh? There's a, yeah, oh yeah, most definitely. But the self-control, the context of what's being presented in the fruit of the Spirit and what the Bible says about self-control, it's something else. While self-control is motivated, motivated by a love for God, which in turn is best for the person. 
Here's, here's an example. Suppose there's a Christian man. He's sitting at his computer. And all of a sudden there's a, that enticement, that temptation to look at something that shouldn't be looked at. And all of a sudden, that, that man is fully aware of the temptation that's welling up in him. That man has really three approaches to this. He can cave and give in to that and, and fulfill the, the lust of the flesh. He, he is very capable of doing that. Or he could be a, a man who's, who knows that what he ought to be and what he ought to do. And he could be a man that sits there and he says, you know something, I'm not going to do that because that's not what's best for me. And, and all that's good and everything. But listen, the man of self-control, it goes a step further for him. For him, not to do that means that he knows it's not only what's not best for him, but he also understands his love for God in such a way that he wants to please him that by going there will not please the heart of God. You see, there's another part of the motivation. The self-controlled man, listen, is not only surrendered to the will of God, surrendered to the control of the Spirit of God. It's not only accountable to those of like faith. It is also someone who says, you know something? This would hurt the heart of God. My life would not be a blessing to the heart of God if I chose to go that way. So it's more than self-discipline. It's more than overcoming some addiction and saying, hey, I've done it. Look at how many. Uh Uh-uh. It's all about a heart that desires to please God and surrender that life to Him. So so I want you to think about this. The difference between worldly self-control and godly self-control is all about who gets the glory. It's really the focus of, of, of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Am I doing it because I want me to be fulfilled? I want, it's all about me. I can still miss it. Or is it one of those things where you're saying, no, this would not honor God? With my actions. It's all about that self-control. So look back at the definition number two on your outline. Self-control is bringing one's desire, appetites, and the passions and impulses under the authority of God's word. Surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit and accountable to another of like faith. Next, how self-control is presented. In scripture, there's a couple of presentations of what self-control is. Self-control is not indulging oneself, but denying oneself. I mean, that's really what it's all about. Our culture screams, indulge yourself. Before you lay your head on a pillow tonight, if you're out there in the world and you're passing billboards or you're looking at television, there's commercials going by you, everything around you is going to scream in those messages, indulge yourself. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said this, if anyone desires to come after me, you want to be a true disciple of me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He's basically saying it's a life not motivated by self-absorption. It's a life that's motivated by honoring me with everything that you do or say. See, our life as Christians should not be defined by fulfilling our own selfish desires, but by fulfilling the desires of our Creator and Savior. And by the way, Lord... Jesus Christ. Next, how self-control is presented. Not self-effort, but surrender. You see, there's so many people. And by the way, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2, if you will. Colossians chapter 2. There's so many people out there. And there's a lot of denominations that endorse this whole thought process. That basically says, if I'll just do the right things, and I'll stay away from the wrong things, 
that everything's going to be okay, and that, that's really all about what self-control is. Now, that is a part of self-control, but it's not the motivation for self-control. That will always let us down. So how do we overcome the works of the flesh? Look at the verse here on the screen, Zechariah 4, 6. Uh, it says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. To conquer, when he says host, he's talking about the captain of armies, to, to conquer, to overcome, to, to be victorious. That's the context of this verse. It won't come by your might, won't come by your own power, but how will it come about? By my spirit. It goes back to our definition, the surrendered life. The life that sees two options and says, I'm going to surrender to the right option. It says, I'm not going to surrender myself to my own flesh. I'm going to surrender myself to the Spirit of God. That's how victory is won. We must be fierce when it comes to living a life of self-control. But it's not by our might. We'll never pull it off. But there's a lot out there that think they can pull it off. You see, Paul in Colossians chapter 2 is addressing the problem of those who worship their self-effort. Do you know what that, that's what the people who encountered Jesus... You, you remember the Pharisees and Sadducees in the scripture? Do you know what they were really worshiping? If, if you put it on the bottom shelf, here's what they were really worshiping. Their own self-effort. Their own righteousness. It was totally disconnected from God. Totally disconnected. And Paul is, is basically calling them this. Listen, it's really a form of legalism. Legalism emphasizes what we do or what we fail to do. Instead of the power of the Holy Spirit who can control our desires and our passions. So look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. First of all, look at verse 13. He says, and you being dead in your trespasses, in your sins. That means nothing you can do about it. You were in a hopeless situation. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, there's nothing you could do about your, your flesh. It was running out of control. It was wicked. It was seeking its own. It says, God has made alive together with him, speaking of Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. Forgiven you all trespasses. And so here's what we need to understand. It wasn't you with enough self-control to justify your life before God. You can never justify your life before God. Do you realize that? In a way that says, okay, I'm going to let you in. It must be by what Christ has done for you. So the life is not all about self-effort. It's about self-control in which you are taking your life and putting it under the surrendered control of the Holy Spirit, of what God desires for you. It's a totally different picture. So look at verse 20. Paul goes on. Therefore... If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch this, do not taste that, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using. He's saying you're misguided in your self-effort. You're misguided in this whole idea of self-control according to commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. It's, it's more than someone saying, I'm going to keep this list. I'm going to forbid this list in my life. Y'all, it's not your relationship with him and you overcoming the flesh you will always be let down by that. Always. 
And Jesus, part of what Jesus did with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he, he, for three years, he was calling them on this. Because they, were, they, they felt that their self-effort was making them pleasing to God. They felt like their self-controls in which they defined themselves made them pleasing to God. He's saying you're totally out of what, what do you say? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. If you who were dead, who were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Not on what everybody else is saying. Set your mind on what God is saying. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not about self-effort. It's not about you discerning the list. It's not about you listening to someone. It's about you meaning business with God in such a way that you're surrendering your life to him. And what he ordains for your life, you say yes to. And what he forbids, you say no to. It's all about knowing his word. Now, the secret of self-control is not imposing rules on your life from the outside. It's being surrendered to a ruler who lives on the inside. The power for self-control is not self-effort, but surrender. Next, look on your outline. How self-control is used. Now, now think of this, y'all. How does, how, how does self-control really work? I mean, how many of you could use some self-control at times? When someone angers you, how many of you have ever felt anger just start and just well up? I mean, you just literally, oh, you're just, you could tell you're about to lose it. Have you ever, you ever figured out how to stop that from happening? Huh? Some of you are like, oh, I'm not very good at that, you know? So, but, but it's all about, it, it does, con, con, it is all about self-control. But it, listen, it's got to go further than that. How self-control is used, look on your outline, to overcome thoughts, emotions, and desires. What type of thoughts? Thoughts of negativity, envy, and worry. Th those things need to be dealt with. Uh, emotions of anger, jealousy, and hatred. Those things need to be dealt with. The desires of gluttony, greed, sexual immorality, sexual perversion. These things need to be dealt with. So, moving from a life that's defined as being out of control, living in the flesh, to a life of self-control, living in the spirit, requires what? Number one, the whole idea of recognition or recognize. You need to recognize the deception. In 2 Peter, that verse we just read a while ago, says basically those who are living in the flesh are living in a delusional life. <laughs> it's delusional. They're defining what they want for their life. It's not a matter of what God forbids and what, what God desires to do in and through it. It's, it's all about what they desire. It's all about, that's what, the only thing that motivates them. It, it, they're motivated by their envy, their worry, their anger, their jealousy, their hatred, their gluttony, their greed, their sexual immorality. And so we got to understand, we got to realize the deception that's there. Now, speaking of God's truth, Peter writes this also in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look, on your, look here on the screen. He says, he's speaking of God's truth. Are some things hard to understand? Let's just stop right there. How many of you sometimes when you read God's word... It's hard to understand. It is. Some of that stuff's hard to understand. I, I had two people this morning ask me questions about something that was in the Bible that was very hard to understand. Matter of fact, the questions they asked me, something I had to go back years ago, research and pray through and understand. And today I was able to give them an answer. But listen, years ago, I didn't know the answers to these things. 
There's some things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. But you know something? There's things in the Bible that are difficult to live out. Much, that's much harder, isn't it? You know, it's amazing how we get so caught up on the things we don't understand. And, and so as a result of not understanding those things, we just kind of write it all off. Here's the real issue. There are parts that we do understand that we're not willing to live by. That's where the problem is. And then sometimes, he's getting ready to say this, sometimes we know what it says, but we refuse to live by it, so we rationalize it or we twist it around. So here's what he says. Are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction? Here's what he's saying. He's saying there are some who are really... Twisting God's word to the destruction. And he has two categories. He has those who are untaught, those who are just ignorant. They don't know what God's word has to say. They don't know. They're just out here just kind of going through the motions. But then there are those who know, and what do they do with it? They twist it for their own gains. They twist it. Listen, here's how many of them do it. They twist it in such a way that takes the emphasis of the works of the Spirit off and puts the emphasis on the works of the flesh. That's the whole reason they want to twist it. So they can live out the sexual perversions. The sexual immorality. So they twist it. To fit their own agenda. To fit what they feel. What they want. What they've always desired. Their passions. And that's where it goes wrong. He goes on and he says. These things lead to their destruction. Two, way, two ways destruction comes to our lives. The Bible says, yeah, the word of God is sometimes hard to understand. But here's, here's what you need to understand. Some of the destruction, it, we're led there by the fact we just don't know God's word. That's the reason we as a church need to teach people God's word. That's the reason you as parents need to teach your children God's word. If you don't, it can lead to their destruction, to the ruin. But then there are those who twist it. It leads to destruction. And then it goes on, it says, they twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. They're not just taking bits and pieces, they're taking the whole, the whole chunk of it, rewriting it for their works. Here's why they're doing it, for the works of their flesh, so it can be justified. Next, well, first of all, here's what we've got to do. We've got to recognize that. You see, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, you're your own worst enemy? We really are. With our self-delusion and our rationalizations, it can lead to destruction. So we got we to call it what it is. We recognize the deception. Number two, we got to realize the truth and the consequences. There are consequences when you begin twisting Scripture. There are consequences when you begin to, to twist things in such a way to fulfill your rationalizations. He goes on, he says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Yeah, it's coming from heaven. The place that you desire, the place that you put in all the what you want. Guess where the wrath's coming from? It's coming from that place. He says, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's what they do. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress it. It's a whole idea again of mishandling it. They play it down. They, they twist it. They build it towards their own rationalizations. Next, how, to, how, how self-control is used to overcome thoughts, emotions, desires. How do we move from a life out of control to a life of self-control? It requires, number three, to repent or repentance. 
asking for forgiveness from God. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, excuse me, Acts 3, 19, look here on the screen. Therefore, repent and be converted. Why would you want to do that? That your sins may be blotted out. Removed. In the context here, it's, it's a whole idea of being removed. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's literally moving out from under the flesh. And by the way, did you know that the flesh offers a whole lot that it doesn't deliver? Have you ever noticed that? Everybody thinks they can get fulfillment and accomplishment and everything through the flesh. It's so misleading. It's deception. It's a matter of turning. Turning away from living in the flesh and turning to living in the spirit and saying, God, I know you know what's best for me. This is what I want. So there's a turning. Why would we do that? So that times of refreshing. You know what times of refreshing remind me of? Peace. Times of joy. I mean, there's all kinds of benefits to that. Ephesians 1, 7. In whom, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. So repentance brings about these things. This whole idea of asking God for forgiveness. It's the whole idea of turning in direction. Fourthly, we got to renounce it. How do we go from a life of out of control to, to self-control? How do we overcome thoughts, emotions, and desires? we got to renounce it. Who do we renounce it to? The enemy, the world, and the flesh. It's literally the whole idea that you've made the determination that you've repented. And now you're going to live where God desires you to live. You're going to live based on living in the Spirit. And there's going to be works of the Spirit that come from you. So therefore, anything that comes from this other world of the flesh, when it comes against you, because you've made the determination, you're living over here, you're renouncing that. Guess who's going to bring up the ideas of the flesh to you? The enemy. How many of you had that done this week? How about, how about this? The world. Oh, yeah. Strong pull. But here's something even more deadly than those two. Your own flesh cries out. You ever, you ever just felt so good about your relationship with God. And I mean, you were camped there. You had repented. You, you're, you're sitting there. You're feeling the times of refreshing in your life. And all of a sudden, there's that pull. All of a sudden, there's that, wait a second. What are they offering over here? There's a lot of people have gone wrong by looking into that world. You got to stay the course. You got to renounce it. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame. Those are things over there that cause of shame, bring guilt into our lives. That's not what's best. This is where we need to be. And he's saying renounce those things that would bring that about. Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. There it is again. It's how you view in the word of God. Are you trying to twist it? Are you trying to turn it in such a way to fulfill your own rationalization so you can fulfill your own flesh? He's saying that's where you get in trouble. But by manifestation of the truth. Now it doesn't say just the truth. It says the manifestation of the truth. The manifestation of the truth is a whole idea that you're living in the reality of the truth. That it just becomes a part of who you are. It's manifested upon you as you're living your life. You're living in truth. You're living. It's, it's like someone in which we may live in a dark world, but we, we literally have the flashlight of God's word that we can see what it truly is. There's a manifestation of it in our lives. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That means that we have the manifestation of the truth is so real, we're surrendering to what God has in such a way that when, when the 
points of the works of the flesh start to rise up, there's something within us that says, don't go there. It's a conscience. It's, it's that thing that says, no, that's not what's best. That's the part, listen, that conscience is what you want to be sharpened in your life, not dulled. You know why people have a dulled conscience? It's because they're mishandling God's word. They're mishandling truth. They want to twist it to their own ideas. They want, to, they want the best of both worlds. And so they've dulled their consciousness. Dangerous place to be. How self-control is used to overcome thoughts, emotions, desires. You've got to rely on the Holy Spirit. It's not the matter of you saying, I shall not be moved. <laughs> it's not a matter of saying, no, I'm not going there. It's something greater than you that helps you with that. It's relying on the Holy Spirit. Look at, look at what Jesus said in John 14. But the helper, isn't that, kind of, isn't that a great title for the Holy Spirit? The helper. You, you, when you say, I'm going to live for the Spirit, <laughs> you need all the help you can get. And you need him. Whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, here's what's interesting about that. To live here, to be fortified here, uh, he's literally saying the remembrance. That means there's got to be something that you've fed into you, feeding on the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, not spending your time twisting it to your own selfish desires, but taking God at His Word, surrendering to Him in such a way that, that when, when the temptation comes... That you can say, oh, wait a minute. That's misleading. You say this, but God's word says this. Don't, don't you think Eve wished she could had gone back and retraced her steps with that conversation with the serpent? Don't you wish she would have just taken God at his word? Not twisted it. Not, not, would have seen through the fact that the, 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 the serpent or the enemy was twisting the words of God. And just took it at face value. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you wish... You would have just taken God's word at face value at a certain time in your life. And right now you're living with the regrets that you didn't. And how bad it hurts at times. It can hurt. John 16, Jesus goes on with this whole conversation of the Holy Spirit. It says, he'll not only teach you all things, he'll guide you. He'll even bring conviction when you go awry, when you go wrong. I mean, he's, he's valuable in this process. Next, how self-control is illustrated. I don't have time to do this, but I put the scripture there. Uh, Self-control, there's really three stages. Look on your outline. There's training. It's the whole idea of discipleship. Um, and, and you can look at these verses. This, and here's, uh, he's using the illustration of successful athletes. The successful athlete knows the value of self-control in training. Uh, the key to training is self-control. And here's what self-control means in the context of that type of training. Saying no to certain things and saying yes to certain things. you got to have that. It's part of that self-control. It's part of the Holy Spirit working in your life. So those things are important. Number two, not only training but also competing. And you hear me say this all the time. But literally living intentionally. So, well, about a year ago, about this time, I was preparing to, to run a marathon. I've run many marathons, 13 miles. I, I, that, I can do them. Those are, if you've ever done a lot of running, you can, you can manage those. But when you talk about a full marathon, you're talking about 26 miles. You've got to really set your mind to something like that. 
Okay? And, and what I literally had to do is I had to go find some training manuals or training things on the Internet to help me to know how to train myself. Now, the only way I was able to go about that is I literally had to get the training part uh, to me. But I, I not only had to have the, the training part, I had to start learning how to live intentionally. Every day I had to wake up and be called to the training manual. You see what I mean? Well, today, here's what you need to do. You need to run, you need to run 6.2 miles. Today you got to do this. So, so I knew the night before I got to wake up. And I got to do what the training manual said. I got to be intentional. I got to cut the time out. I got to place myself. I got to look at my day. I got to position it in such a way that nothing's going to hinder what it's going to take to do what I've been called to do. You see, so many people don't live their life that way. So many times we just wake up and think, man, I hope we can survive it today. Man, let's just see what happens. That is in no way the way Paul described his life. In several epistles, he described his life, and here's what the bottom line was, intentionally living for God. Living. It was something that was in the forefront. you got to have that. And then there's not only the training, not only the competing, but also the winning. And it's the whole idea of staying the course. You will never finish anything unless you stay the course. you got to stay the course. you got to stay with it. You, you don't need to divert Paul spoke of this whole idea. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Soon after this statement, he'll be killed himself. Do you think he fulfilled what he was called to do? He did, but he, he would have never fulfilled it in the works of the flesh. Had to be the works of the spirit. Application. The very concept of self-control implies a battle between a divided self. John Piper said that. If you ever heard of John Piper, he's a much deeper thinker than me. But, but he's got some great quotes. A, the concept of self-control implies a battle between a divided self. How many of you know that's that battle that wages? And then Galatians 5, 24 and 25. All and those, he's talking about the fruit of the spirit. He's talking about the works of the flesh. He's talking about the fruit of the spirit. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. What does that mean? Put to death everything that's over here. Listen, not trying to talk, not trying to engage with it, not trying to rationalize things, not trying to say, hey, well, what's the terminology? Put it to death. If you don't put it to death, you, you can't win when it comes to the flesh. The mentality is to take extreme measures. Put it to death with its passions and desires. So if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let there be evidence there. So here's the question. Are you walking in the Spirit? If so, it will be evident. Your life, guess what? Will produce fruit, beginning with these nine. So how's your life defined? I want to close with this box that's at the bottom of your outline. We have it here on the screen, but I'm going to let you fill it in because there are several things at play here. Uh, and, and what I want you to do, I want you to first, you see it on your outline? I want you to first notice the box. See it here on the screen? The box. That, let's just say that's living in the Spirit. The box itself, the boundaries of the box is God's Word. It's truth. Okay? That's what the boundaries are. That's His truth. That's what you need to be living your life by. Now, living in the flesh is the idea of being separated from God. That's what it means. That means you'll pray for deception. 
anxiety, a critical spirit, ungodliness. You're living in rebellion, and it will lead to ruin and destruction. It does. There's examples of that in, in your family. If you don't have any in your family, I can tell you some from mine. I can tell you some I deal with. That leads to ruin and destruction. But look at the inside the box. Inside the box is everything God desires for you is found in the box. The, The difference is living in the flesh is not what God has for you. It's rebellion. It's open rebellion. You might not want to call it that, but that's what the Bible calls it. But living in the box is living in the spirit. It's it's encountering his blessings, his wisdom, his discernment, his protection, his provision. It's also where the fruit living is, is happening. That's where love and joy and peace is the whole context of living in the box. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self control. Staying in the box requires discipline, living intentionally, and staying the course. Every bit of that's found in the box. So if you were to say, okay, give me a picture of the sermon this morning and how I need to live my life. Here here it is in a nutshell. Live inside the box. Get inside the box. Let the, the parameters of your life, the boundaries of your life, be the word of God. Don't twist it. Don't try to make rationalizations about it. Don't, 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 don't take away from it. You live out what God says clearly in his word. And and most of all, be a student. Listen, if you don't know the word, you're not going to live the word. You got to know the word. Get in the word. So where are you this morning? Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now and we just thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the provision that you made for us on the cross and this whole idea of what you provided for us and the fact that we don't have to live in the flesh any longer. We don't have to be a victim of the flesh. We don't have to see a life that's on the path of destruction and ruin. But Father, we can live in that box with the parameters of that box being your word, being truth, and which is something that we're surrendering our life to. It's not something we're trying to manipulate. It's not something we're trying to rationalize. It's just us taking you at your word. It's a whole idea of being accountable to your word, to, to not only being accountable, but placing ourselves under the authority of that word to be led by your spirit. And Father, I just pray for each one here today. I know many people in this room would say, yes, I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But Father, help them to see that there's evidence that comes of that. And Lord, if there's no evidence, I pray that they'll start that process, first of all, by recognizing it, by repenting, by renouncing, and by relying on your Holy Spirit to come back to the life that you've called them to. For, Lord, for those living outside the box. And by the way, Father, we know that can be a believer or it can be an unbeliever. There's been times in my life as a Christian that I've lived outside the box. Lord, help us to realize you're calling us inside the box to live in the realities of what you have for us, grounded by your word. We thank you for what you desire to do here this morning. In Jesus' name. Would your heads bow and your eyes closed?